As we get into this message today, I want to ask the parents in the, the audience or the congregation a question. How many of you get up with your kids when they were young in the middle of the night? How many parents got up with their kids in the middle of the night? All right. For those men that are raising their hand, I don't believe you. Uh, because as I, I, was, I heard the story once, I, I shared it in the first service, I'd heard it several years ago. I was talking one time, I was lamenting to Patty how uh, my wife hears just a, one of my kids makes a small noise and she's up taking care of it. Uh, just the other night, my son came in the room, and she knew exactly what he needed right away. With me, you could drive a Mack truck through my bedroom, and I wouldn't hear a thing. Uh, and I've noticed this. Like, men have a tendency to sleep really well. And, and I know a lot of couples that say when they have the baby, they're like, Dad's like, I'm going to be helping take care of the baby. And that might last for a little while. Uh, and I hope it lasts for a long time. But reality is, is I see a lot of men just don't wake up as well as the women do. And God has wired the women to be able to do that. And I was talking with Patty uh, about that, Patty Brown, and she was mentioning that when, when Kevin was a, a, a boy, uh, that, or a baby, that Scott was going to be helping with the baby. Now, Scott's a helpful guy. Uh, he's a tentative guy. He's been faithful here for several years. And she said she heard the baby. And, of course, the man usually doesn't hear the baby. The mother hears it first. And she hits Scott, and she goes, go get the baby. And he goes, okay, okay. And Scott's a computer programmer, and he goes, what, what operating system is he using? <laughs> and, and she goes, you are absolutely worthless. Go back to sleep. Okay. Now, how many of you have felt like that? Have you ever read that with your, your I mean, with your kids? Was it the, I'm going to ask the wives in the, in the congregation. Ladies, how many of you felt like you wish your husband would get up in the middle of the night like that? Wow, these other ladies are like, I, I'm not going to raise my hand because I don't want to embarrass you right here, right now. But you are worthless in the middle of the night. All right? Because you see that happen with different couples. But it's amazing to me that the moms have a tendency to be much more attentive to the needs of the children. Now, the, the moms usually testify that you could, too, know the needs of my kids. My wife has told me that several different times. You can know the needs of my children. The children. And she goes, don't you know what they eat? I'm like, yeah, I just take out the, the checks mix and throw it on the floor. And they eat it all up. They're all good. They're like chickens. You know, just throw it down. <laughs> I mean, I, I, that's, I, I really, I, I mean, I try to pay attention to these different things, but my wife knows, even when she heard the cries of our children, I'm like, what's wrong? And she goes, don't you know what's wrong? Can't you hear what's wrong? No, the kid just cried. Well, he's hungry. How do you know that? There's something where she just knew the needs. Moms, you know the needs of your kids really well. Uh, and it's amazing to me. Just as my son came in the other night, he's uh, suffering right now because uh, the weather, the pollen, and different things like that, and he's asthmatic, so he's having a hard time breathes, breathing. So he gets up in the middle of the night, and my wife is right on it, and she knew exactly what he needed right then and there. And I'm amazed at that, how many moms can know that, and grandmothers know that. It's just this amazing ability to, do, to know that. But what's even more amazing to me is how God knows our needs. That when, God, when we come to God, he knows exactly what we need when we need it. It's, it's amazing to me. And he's better than a mother or grandmother. I mean, he knows the deep spiritual needs that we have. He knows our struggles. He knows our sicknesses. He knows our suffering. He knows our trials. He knows our temptations. He knows the hurts that are in our heart. And, and he communicates through James to, about this, how to help in, in helping with our need. See, James... James is a, is a man that he, he was intimately familiar with the people that he was writing to. They had been dispersed, if you remember the story, over the known world because of persecution that had developed within Jerusalem. They were forced to leave their homelands, sometimes losing their businesses, leaving them behind, losing their careers, uh, losing their families, friends, familiar smells, things they understood. The familiarities that make it home 
and to be disenfranchised, put in a place where you have no power, no familiarity. And, and they were suffering. Uh, they, many of them, they needed to get jobs, and they found themselves working for these, uh, these business owners who would take advantage of their, in essence, refugee status. Uh, they wouldn't pay them fairly or treat them fairly. Uh, they, and, and even then, some of these guys would even go to church, these business owners, and then they found the church leaders treating these wealthy people better than they were treating the poor people who had been disenfranchised. I mean, there was a lot of conflict going on in these churches that were there. People were gossiping about one another. She was saying this about this guy or this woman or that thing. And, and we all know this. We all experience these things, these personal conflicts that we go through. We experience employment issues. We experience marital problems, stuff with our children, all these different kinds of suffering. And James writes about all of these things. And he's saying, in one moment, here's what you need. I have your solution. I have what you need right here, right now. And that's what he's writing to us in this passage. He is showing them and us what we need, the deep needs of our heart. And he knows what we need. And he lays, he's ending this letter with these last tools to cope, tools to live by. And that's what we're going to look at today. But maybe you're here and you're suffering, you're struggling this morning. I know in interacting with several of you this past week, I know that there are a lot of people that are hurting. I know there are some that have lost jobs. There are some that are wondering where their paychecks are going to, whether, how they're going to survive financially. Others are looking for a place to live. Some are looking for transportation. Some are really struggling in their married life. We're struggling with their children. There's a massive discipline issue that's going on or a conflict between kids. There's interpersonal conflict. There, there are those that are wondering, hey, why are they treating me this way? What's, what, what's going on here? And, and there's, people are suffering. But you know, God speaks to our suffering. He speaks to us in the middle of our suffering. We have this tendency to think he's not there. But he is there, and he's not silent. And he's provided us with his word to encourage and empower us and equip us to be the men and women that he wants us to be in this day and age, to get through the situations in which we find ourselves. So let's listen in and, and examine the word of God together. But before we go any further, let's ask God by his Holy Spirit to speak to us that we might have soft and open hearts to receive the truth that he wants us to hear today. So let's take a moment and ask him to send forth his spirit to speak to us that we might go forth changed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are God. And we are reminded that you have the entire world in your hand. And Lord, though we know you are, you are the big, great, all-powerful, sovereign God, sometimes we need a word to know that you're attentive to our situations. That you are intimately familiar with our struggles and all that we go through. And Lord, today I pray that your word might speak to us no matter what situation in which we find ourselves, no matter what conflict, no matter what trial, tr trouble, or crisis. The Lord showed that you are God and that you know what we need. And may we receive this truth willingly, and may we go forth changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's start off in our passage. And this is an amazing passage. In James chapter 5, verse 13. James writes, starts off and he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now it's interesting. Both of these, let him 
pray and let him sing praise. I mean, for, first of all, you have conditional uh, terms that are being introduced. Is, are you going through this? Are you going through that? Then he gives a command, let him pray or let him sing praise. He's saying that no matter what you find yourself going through in life, God knows what you need, and what you really need is his presence. And he says here, I want you to pray. And the way that it's actually worded in Greek, and remember the New Testament is written in Koine Greek, which is common Greek. It was to the common everyday person. And he writes, and these words have meaning in them, and and they're written as present imperative. These are are present tense things that we are actively to do. There are commands. He's saying that I want you to do this. I'm commanding you to do this. God wants you to seek his face continually. The idea is doing it over and over again. It's in the active voice, which means it's not something done to you. That's in the passive voice. It's in the active voice. This is something that you are to do. And he's saying that no matter what you're going through, whether you're suffering or whether you're completely cheerful, I want you and I command you to seek God's face continually. He's giving us a command to seek God's face. He knows what we need and what we really ultimately need is God himself. And he, he says, first of all, is anyone among you suffering? And the word here for suffering is an all-inclusive word. It means any type of trial whatsoever that you're going through, marital, financial, uh, career-wise, what's going on relationally, whatever you're going through, it's an all-encompassing word. And he's writing to give hope. And he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. You pray, seek God in the middle of your suffering. Run to him who is the ever-present help in time of need. Run to him knowing that he will take his, your burdens upon himself. And he says, cast all your anxiety upon me. And he says, take my burden upon you, my yoke upon you, and I will give you rest. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, as 1 Peter 5, 7 says. God is there. He is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. It means seeking God when times are hard. That's what it's basically about right here. God is commanding us to seek him in, when times are hard, when we're suffering. Now, we have this tendency to think if it's hard, then it's not right. We have this tendency to think that suffering is, is, is not a part of God's plan. That's not true. See, God uses suffering in our lives to bring out who he is. Now, there are sometimes instances where we do suffer because of actions that we have done, and we're actually going to talk about that momentarily. But there are situations and times which we find ourselves where suffering is not because of our own choices, but is what has been done to us. And he's saying, I'm giving you this tool. No matter what suffering you're going through, whether it's because of a choice that you've had or you've done or something that's been done to you, then I want you to call on God. I want you to call on God when times are hard. Because you know what? God is breaking you. God is using you and you're going to use your suffering. See, again, we have this tendency to think that suffering is not a part of God's plan. And we even hear TV preachers say that. But the reality, that's not true. Just for example, I don't know if you've ever, if you like coffee or not, but let's take, imagine you take those coffee beans and you just put them in, I mean, the coffee, whole coffee beans, and you put them in the coffee maker and you put the water in there and you turn it on. What kind of coffee are you going to get? You're not going to get it. You're not going to get anything. Because it's going over the beans. It's not till the beans are broken that the flavor comes out. It's the same with us as Christians. We have to be broken for the true reality of who Christ is to come out. We have to understand we're to seek God when times are hard. God has this tendency, or, or not God has a tendency. We have a tendency not to seek God when times are good. We have a tendency only to seek God when times are hard. I think about when I was a young pastor and September 11th occurred. 
churches were filled that Sunday because there was something so painful, so jarring that people wanted to, needed to see God. The reality is, is that God, I don't think God always wants to bring that, that pain in our lives. He'd rather have us just seek Him. But many of us are very hard-headed and stubborn, and we don't pay attention in, until God does break us. So we need that in order to get, it, get our attention. I, we have a man who comes to our first service. His name is Paul Mann. Uh, Paul is an interesting man. He's 82 years old. He's been in pastoral ministry for 50 years. He's in a wheelchair. The entire right side of his body is paralyzed. We had him over uh, for dessert last Sunday night. And uh, Paul uh, has a wheelchair. He's got this kind of souped-up minivan uh, that has one of those uh, tractor balls on the steering wheel that you have to turn with one hand. And, I, and, and, and all of the, you open up the, the van, and it's got all of the, the pedals on the left-hand side. I said, why? He goes, because my right side doesn't work, and I can't use my right side at all. It's paralyzed. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. He goes, I'm not. He goes, I had a stroke 14 years ago. It was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. And I was kind of shocked by that. I said, it was the best thing that's ever happened to you? He goes, yeah, because God really made me pay attention to him. And I have now more time and more desire to seek his face than I ever had before. See, God uses our pain. As C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures but he shouts to us in our pain. It is, me- it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I think many of us in this room can testify to that truth of how God has woken you up when you faced a financial crisis, when you faced a situation that was beyond your control. You had no choice but to depend on God. But see, God uses that because he wants to bring himself into the situation. See, it's interesting here. He, he says, also, is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing songs of praise. Again, it's in the imperative. God wants us to sing praise. Why? Why does God want you to sing praise? Why does God command you or command us to seek him in prayer? You ever wondered that? Lewis, as I just was referring to, he wondered that. He wondered that so much because he, he, when he read the, uh, the book of Psalms for the very first time, he was really struck by the commands that God had given to worship himself. It bothered him. He said, here's God saying, praise me. Praise me. Praise me. Praise me. Praise me. Praise me. He said, it was like a vain woman standing in front of the mirror looking for compliments. Tell me how good I look. Does this dress look nice? Tell me how beautiful I am. And it really bothered Lewis. But then he realized something. He said, it's in the process of being worshipped that God communicates himself to men. That's why in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was so detailed Because God was cultivating a way and finding a way for man to cultivate or engage in the very presence of God. See, when we worship God, God reveals himself to us. Some of us have never worshipped that well. We just kind of go through the motions. We don't sing. We don't get engaged in it. And I would also venture to say you've probably never never experienced God's presence. If you've experienced God's presence, and I've had God reveal himself to me oftentimes during worship services, where God shows up, and you know he's in the room, manifestly so. And there's something about that that's absolutely phenomenal because it's in the process of being worshipped that God communicates himself to us. That's why God takes your worship very, very seriously. So when you come into worship, you're not just singing songs. You're invoking the name of Almighty God. You're giving the very essence of who you are to him. 
So here we have God saying, I want you to seek me when times are hard, and I also want you to seek me when you're happy. Cheerful is another term for being happy, joyous. When times are great, things are going well. I want to be with you all the time. I want to give you myself. See, we have this tendency, and, and I'm amazed at how many Christians get bored with the idea of God. It's because they really haven't stepped into God's presence before. Because if you step into God's presence, it's not boring. It, is, it shakes you to the very core of who you are. And you're overwhelmed at the majesty and the magnitude and the absolute power of God. That there's nothing else. Nothing else could even come close to that. Not marriage, not sex, not drugs, not any other hobby, not anything else. There's no entertainment. Nothing comes to the, to the I mean, can even compare to what it's like to be in the very presence of Almighty God and to know that He's there. And that's what God is telling these people. Through James, he's saying, call on me. Bring me into your life. I want to be there for you. I want to I be able to carry that burden. I want you to know that I'm there. I want you to delight in me. I want, you to, I want to give you myself. That's why he's commanding this. It's because he wants to give himself to you. God doesn't want to just give you earthly blessings. He wants to give you him very self. That's what the gospel is. God is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus coming to earth to save sinners, but God giving him very self, his very self for you. To show himself to you. To give himself to you. That's an amazing thing. Matter of fact, it's the most amazing thing in the history of the universe. Is God giving himself to us. And that's what James is telling us here. God wants to give himself to you. He wants you to seek Him when times are hard, when times are happy, and when you need healing. Healing. When we need healing. Let's look back at our text. In verse 14, is anyone among you sick? First of all, he goes back to suffering. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Okay? People are suffering. They pray. Is anyone cheerful? I'm having a good day. Let, me, let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? I mean, he is going through the entirety of the human condition. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working or effective. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. When we need healing. Now, I want to talk here about healing for a moment, because in our uh, Western world, we don't talk uh, much about healing. For those that come from majority world cultures, you probably talk a lot about healing. Okay, and we see in America there's a, not as an emphasis on healing as much as it is in other countries where there's a big focus on it. And, and we need to be somewhere in the middle because you can overemphasize healing and you can underemphasize healing. All right, and, I, and I've seen both of these play out in different ways. Now, the reason that it's, people want to say, well, why is it underemphasized? Because of the abuses that have occurred with many different individuals and churches. We have people, and we all know of someone who prayed for healing, thought they were going to be healed, and then they died. I, I've had this work out in my, my life. For those who, who know my story, this is how my father died. Uh, because he prayed for healing, he was told he was going to be healed, he got rid of his insurance, didn't go to the doctor, just relied on God, and then he died. All right, so there's this understanding that we, we, we're afraid of this, 
Well, we, and the reality is, is we're, we're afraid of it because we don't understand it. And over here, there's a greater emphasis on it, which is good. But usually in instances like this, there's not a lot of, of access to medical knowledge, scientific knowledge, things like that. Um, and so there's a real big focus on healing, and it's good to, to focus on healing. Now, what does this healing refer to? Okay, some would say it's a spiritual healing, say it's a physical healing. I believe it's actual physical healing that he's talking about here in this instance. Okay, it's someone that has a life-threatening disease so much or a sickness so bad that they can't even get out of bed and they have to ask for help. And they call for the elders of the church to come to him. Now, it's very important that we understand what's going on in these verses and what's being said within this context. Because we see that the root of this, the suffering has different roots or this sickness, whatever it might be. Sickness can just become as a result of the fall. Cancer, mental illness, heart attacks, uh, all these different things that we suffer with are all products of the fall. And they all happen to us. Okay? We experience all of these. They're products of the fall. So these are just normal, everyday fallen occurrences that we go through. But there are other instances where we get sick and ill because of being spiritually disobedient to God. And he brings these instances into our life. Now, you might say, well, where do you get this from? 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in the communion passage and you can look around verse 29 or verse 30. And Paul is writing to those who take the, take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And he says, for those who don't examine themselves, um, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died, is what the text says. Meaning that you have done this because you didn't examine yourself. When you sat down to consider what God had done, you just took communion like it was nothing. And then God brought a sickness within your life to get your attention. So you see here that suffering sometimes just is the product of the fall or these sicknesses that we have. And there's other times where it's directly spiritual correlation to our disobedience. That's why he says, let him, the elders anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And if he has committed sins, he shall be forgiven. Meaning that it could be that root of what's going on. That it's a direct result of his disobedience. But he's expressing now a faith. The idea of repentance is built in because he's asking for the elders of the church to be there for him. All right? Now, what do we do, though, with the part where it says, let him ask for the elders of the church. They will anoint him with oil. And, it, and the power is not in the oil, by the way. My wife, of course, is asking, what, what kind of oil was it? Frankincense? Is it a, she's into essential oils, so she wanted to know which oil it was at. Probably just plain old olive oil. Okay? And the power is not in the oil. But the oil is symbolizing the Holy Spirit and that God's presence upon the person. And he's going to interact in this situation. And it says the prayer of faith. So these elders of the church, these under-shepherds, come together at the request of the person. And they anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then they pray the prayer of faith. The key part is in the prayer of faith. What is the prayer of faith? And I did a little research on this, trying to understand it. I found a great comment by John Piper, understanding what this prayer of faith is. He says this. He says, the text does not teach that everyone the elders pray for will be healed. It teaches this instead, that if the elders pray the prayer of faith, the sick person will be healed. This is stated so absolutely that it seems to me that a gift of faith is meant here. Now, what is the gift of faith? Okay, there's different types of faith in Scripture. There is the uh, faith of which we are saved by. But then there's like sanctifying faith. And then there's this gift of faith, which puts us in what we call the spiritual gifts. Now, if, if you are a believer in Christ, God, the moment that you trust in Christ, gives his Holy Spirit to you and then equips you supernaturally to do certain tasks for him. He created you to do that. Every single person has a task in a, in a ministry that God has for you. 
And some of it's up front, like a speaking or teaching ability to preach the Word of God. I mean, when I got, became a Christian, I had this desire to be preaching right away. It's like, I need to be in the pulpit. I don't know why. I just need to preach. It's because God had gifted me to preach and teach the Word. But there's other people that have different gifts. Gifts of administration, gifts of helps, gifts behind the scenes, gifts, several different gifts. And there's one part of the list where it says, there are gifts of healings. Now, it's a double plural in Greek. Gifts of healings, meaning there's not just one spiritual gift of healing. There's not that one person that's standing up that you've seen on TV, waving his coat, saying, everybody's healed. That's, that, that is nowhere. You never see Jesus do anything like that, ever, by the way, ever. Um, it, but you also see within this list is, list is what's called the gift of faith. Now, what is the gift of faith? This is different from saving faith. This is a gift that God gives to a person at the moment in time where they believe God is going to interact. I mean, not just believes or assured that God's going to do something in any given situation. So these are people who are like, I sense God telling us to do this right now. Now, we know that there can be abuses of that. And we've had people say, God's leading us to do this, and it really wasn't God leading them to do anything. That's why we're to test the spirits to see if they are from God. Okay? We have to be... We have to honor the word of God. And we also know that there are false prophets and people that will say that God led them to do something. And the, the proof is in the action. Does it come to pass? If it doesn't, that person's a false prophet. They're blaspheming against God. So it's something you have to take very, very seriously when we're saying God is saying something. But these are people that God has gifted at that moment in time that Jesus actually talks about. And we see Piper actually evalu- uh, talks about this further. In 1 Corinthians twelve nine. he says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. He's introducing this concept of the spiritual gifts for the common good. Meaning it's not just for one person, and it's for, um, for everybody. To one, this gift. To another, faith by the same Spirit. This is the gift of faith. This is the same faith that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13, 2. And some of you might know this. Though I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love. Right? He's saying, I can have this gift of faith to do this, but I don't have love, then it means nothing. So it has to be coupled with love. And it, this is also the same faith that's mentioned, I believe, in Mark chapter 11, verse 23 through 24, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. So, according to Piper, he says, It seems to me that we have in Mark 11, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and James 5, an unbroken line of teaching about a gift of faith that enables a person to pray a completely assured prayer because God has given extraordinary assurance. This is why the prayer of faith in James 5.15 will heal the sick person. There's a guarantee behind this. It is certain because this faith is God's special gift of assurance about what he intends to do. So Piper goes on and says, So the picture I have of the elders at the bedside of the sick person is not a group of men who all think gifts of faith and healing are past, but of a group of men who earnestly desire a spiritual gift of faith so that they might pray the prayer of faith, which in this case would amount to the same thing as a gift of healing. Now, I've only read about one person that I've ever really seen that I I think completely had this gift, uh, and and this gift of faith and healings, a man by the name of Reuben Archer Torrey. R.A. Torrey. He was the first superintendent of Moody Bible Institute, uh, became the founding president of Biola, which is a Christian university in California. Uh, it stood for Bible Institute of Los Angeles. And he uh, worked with D.L. Moody very closely together. And he wrote a book called Divine Healing. 
And in this book, he talks about there are instances where God spoke to him at a moment in time where he were to lay hands on a certain person and that for their healing. He says, I can't pray for, I can't heal anybody. He can't, I can't just heal people randomly. So you see these TV preachers go on and they say, hey, I can heal them. Or if, like, you, and I've seen Benny Hinn do this, where he comes up and a person says, I have lung cancer. He puts hands on him and he says, hey, you're healed. But if you doubt the healing, then it's going to go away. That's, as my grandfather would say, that's hogwash. It's a little old term there. He, because nowhere in Scripture do you ever see that happening. Nowhere do you ever see, I mean, where Jesus says, he says, according to your faith, let it be. But you never see an instance where a person goes away after they were blind and they were seeing going, man, I doubt this thing. Maybe I'm not really seeing after all. Or if you had a broken leg and it was suddenly healed, you're not going to go, well, maybe it's really broken and I don't believe it. Even with a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, touched the hem of his robe and knew instantaneously that she was healed, there was no doubting it any longer. It was a change that had occurred within her. And so when I see a lot of these different TV preachers doing that, I, I, you never would see Jesus doing that. Matter of fact, you see Jesus doing the complete opposite. After he'd healed people all day long in the book of Mark, he goes away and retreats to be with his father. And it says that the disciples came to him. They were looking for him all day going, Jesus, man, you got a huge following out there. Your Instagram is blowing up, brother. you got so many Facebook followers. you got all these people that want to go after you. You are a celebrity, man. You're going viral. And Jesus goes, I didn't come to be a sideshow came to preach the gospel. And he leaves and goes to different towns to do that because he wasn't there to be a sideshow. Now, did Jesus heal? Yes. Does he use means to heal? Yes. Why else would he take the, remember when he took the dirt and he spit on it, made it mud and put it on someone's face? He could have just went like that. Why did he use the mud? To show that God uses means to heal as well. So we have to understand this balance of healing. And, and Tori had this instance where he said, God told me to go touch that person lay hands on him. And he talks about people that were hunchbacks or broken legs immediately changed. But he, he also said this, this is secondary to proclaiming the gospel. I'm not here for that. I'm here to proclaim the word. And I can't control when God says to do this. God's going to do that on his own timing and in his own way. So he wasn't this person going around going, I got the gift of healing. He was trying to bring balance to it and really try to honor what the God says within the scriptures about it. So does God heal? Yes. In his time and in his own way. We have to understand that. But he's there for our healing as well. We need to understand as we go about this text and keep that, uh, keep that understanding. But that's not all within this text. This is, where, this is where we get into verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. He's saying that, hey, you should confess. Don't hold on to these sins that we do have. Confess your sins, not just to God, but to one another. And then he goes on and says that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great a power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years. and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, if we go back into verse 15, we see that God's talking about prayer. Matter of fact, he talks about pray, praying and prayer seven times in five verses. So, which is showing us this. James is telling us and, and giving us a call to pray fervently. See, that's the other part of this. We have to understand God knows what we need, and he created prayer as the means of getting a hold of what we need, which is getting a hold of God himself. That's the second point in your notes, that he has called us to pray fervently. He's called us to pray fervently. Now, the word fervent means passion, intense, hot, burning. God desires that we pray with great intensity. How, how intense is your prayer life? 
Have you ever prayed where you're being overcome in the presence of God and you found yourself wrestling and gripping and moaning? I have. Where it's just, you're not just going through the formula. You sense God there and you're, God is doing something and you're just trying to understand it. Where you're almost wrestling with God and he's saying, I want you to pray fervently. I want you to pray passionately like Elijah did who prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain. I mean, I've often wondered who has a prayer life like this? I mean, I know that one of the greatest prayers within church history was a man by the name of George Mueller. How many of you have ever heard of George Mueller? Stick your hand up. A lot of people heard of George Mueller. This guy, I mean, was an amazing prayer. George Mueller of Bristol. Matter of fact, if you've ever heard of the names Charles Spurgeon or Dwight L. Moody, these amazing evangelists, Moody Bible Institute is named after him. Uh, Spurgeon started, I want to say, 19,000 ministries within his lifetime. This is an amazing dude, okay? Both of them felt like unworthy in the presence of Mueller. Mueller was a man of most incredible faith. If you ever get a chance to read some of his stuff, it will blow you away. Because he mentions, I mean, this is what Mueller did in his lifetime. Let me just give you a little bit some details. He, he ministered for 63 years. He was directly involved in the Christian instruction of 121,000 people. He distributed 281,000 Bibles. 1.4 million New Testaments, 21,000 copies of the book of Psalms. This is in 1800s. 220,000 other portions of scriptures. He passed out over 111 million tracts, booklets, and pamphlets and was directly involved in the conversion of 2,813 orphans. This was a man that had a most amazing prayer ministry, prayer life. He actually testified that in his lifetime, he, he had, he, he had 50,000 specific prayers answered. Years before he died, about the middle of his career, he affirmed that up to that time, 5,000 of his definite prayers had been answered on the very day of asking. This is a man who started an orphanage to thousands of children and never once asked, not once, not once. He didn't come out with a plan. He didn't have anything except by prayer alone. He called on God, and God would supernaturally supply the needs time and time again to the point where the children are sitting down one morning to eat breakfast, and, and the kids are like, where's the food? And he says, God hasn't supplied it yet. I mean, we think that's nuts. You know, we need to check you in over, uh, over at Provena. Yeah, check you in at Mercy. Something's wrong with you. And what happens? There's a knock at the door. And there's a baker standing there, and he goes, my car just broke down. All my bread's going to go bad. Would you use it? Uh, this is how it happens time and time again in his life. This man had a, a call to pray fervently. And he said this about prayer. It's pretty amazing. He says, I live in the spirit of prayer. I pray as I walk about when I lie down and when I rise up, and the answers are always coming. Thousands and tens of thousands of times have my prayers been answered. When once I am persuaded that a thing is right and for the glory of God, I go on praying for it until the answer comes. George Mueller does not or never gives up. Never gives up. Now, before we can pray fervently, we've got to take some steps because there are some conditions to prayer. And he says here, confess your sins to one another. The first thing is, is confessing honestly. We have to confess to other people honestly about our sins in our lives. It requires us to confess honestly. We have to do business with God. It's just like with mold. Um, you have mold grow in the dark, damp places. You have to expose it to the light. When sin is not confessed, it has a tendency to grow in our lives. So we confess, not just to God, but to one another. To invoke accountability partners, people that are there for us, that can help us uh, walk this journey with Christ. But that's not all. Look at verse 16. He says, pray for one another 
that you may be healed. It's not just confessing honestly, but he's saying for one another. I want you to intercede compassionately for other people. I want you to pray for other people. I want you to pray for one another. We have this tendency to just pray for ourselves and our own issues. Do you pray for other people? Who do you pray for? And I'm not just talking about your immediate family. Are you praying for others that you know are struggling and going through a difficult time? That's what we're to be doing, is praying for one another, interceding compassionately. But that's not all. Look at verse 16 again. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and is effective. Prayer of a righteous person. Who's a righteous person? Those who live their life righteously. See, that's another thing, is living righteously. Living an upright life, not being deceptive. God has a way of rooting that out. Matter of fact, going back to the, the first point, confessing honestly, in Psalm 66, 18, and in Isaiah chapter 59, it says that if we hold on to sin, God doesn't hear our prayers. If you willingly hold on to sin, okay, and you know you're being completely disobedient, and yet you wonder, you're like, God's going to hear me. Why would God hear you? Why would God hear you? If you're willingly holding on and not, not confessing it, God will place his spirit upon you so much until you, I mean, just as David said, my strength is sapped as in the heat of summer until I confess my sin. We have to confess our sins. We have to make sure that we are living righteously the way God wants us to. And then we need to ask expectantly. Ask expectantly. See, Elijah waited. And I love the story of Elijah when he's praying. He prayed that it wouldn't rain. For three and a half years it didn't rain. Then he goes and prays. And he gets down. He puts his head between his knees and he's praying. And he sends his servant, here, go, go up to the edge of the cliff and look and see if the rain's coming. And the servant comes back and he's like, there's no rain coming. He goes, go again. The guy goes, okay. He runs over there. Comes back again. There's no rain, Elijah. Keep going. Okay. He keeps running back. Seven times he, come, he runs. And finally he comes back and he goes, there's a, there's, a, there's a cloud about the size of a man's fist. Elijah goes, you better move. Rain's coming. And it's coming fast. He, pray, he prayed expectantly. And Mueller talks about this and how he prayed expectantly. Matter of fact, there's this amazing story I wanted to relate to you. Mueller was going to the United States or coming to the U.S. in uh, 1877. He found himself off the coast of Newfoundland when a, a dense fog rolled in, so much that it pretty much paralyzed the ship. He goes to the captain. He goes, Captain. He comes onto the, the deck. Captain had been 24 hours straight. That's how bad the, bad the fog was. He had to be completely on alert so they wouldn't hit any iceberg or anything else and sink the boat or any other boats that are around. And so he, he, uh, the captain actually testifies at this moment that Mueller came on board or came on the deck, changed his life. And Mueller goes, you got to get me to, i got to be in Quebec by Saturday. He goes, it's impossible. And this is what Mueller says. I love this. Very well, said Mueller. If your ship cannot take me, God will find some other way. I've never broken an engagement for 52 years. Let us go down into the chart room and pray. The captain wondered which lunatic asylum Mueller had come from. Mr. Mueller, he said, do you know how dense this fog is? Mueller said, no, my eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. Mueller then knelt down and prayed simply. When he had finished, the, finished, the captain was about to pray, but Mueller put his hand on his shoulder and he said, don't pray. He says, here's why. First of all, you do not believe that God's going to answer. And second, I already believe he has answered. And there's no need for whatever for you to pray about it. The captain looked at Mueller in amazement. Captain, he continued, I've known my, my Lord for 52 years, and there has never been a single day that I have failed to get an audience with the king. Get up, captain, and open the door, and you'll find the fog is gone. The captain walked across the door and opened it. The fog had lifted. 
It was the captain himself who later told the story of this incident, who was subsequently described by a well-known evangelist as one of the most devoted men I ever knew. He was changed by that interaction because he saw how God really worked in that moment in time. I believe God still answers prayers like that in God's way and what means in ways that I don't understand, but I do believe in a God who answers prayer, and I believe that God who supernaturally responds to his people, he works in people's lives. It's not always in the way that we expect. I mean, Mueller had an amazing audience with the king, but I believe that we need to wait, we need to ask expectantly that God's going to respond, and then we need to wait patiently for him to answer. We need to wait patiently. Prayer is like a time bomb. It may not go off until the future. I have a sister that I've been praying for for over 20 years, and God is working in her life. This past January, she contacted me and said she was reading the Bible. You have to understand something. My sister's never cracked the Bible that I've ever known, ever. And here she's telling me that she's reading the Bible, and then she's telling me how she's praying. And she started going to church. I've been praying for 20 years for my sister. And then I saw on Facebook, she put this. God works in mysterious ways. One door opens and one door closes. I thank God for the little things and not, the big, not just the big things. What an answer to prayer. God had responded to her prayer. Uh, my sister was getting ready to be kicked out of her home. Um, and uh, the man who was getting ready to kick her out, she owed him some back taxes for stuff. She's had some financial issues. And he stopped as he was walking away from the home. He turned back and he goes, you know what? I'm going to take care of all your back taxes. I'm going to buy the home and you're going to stay here a little bit longer. She goes, he's never done anything like that ever. I've never seen my, this man has no faith. And she goes, but I was praying so much that God would be merciful. And then she says, she said, what an answer to prayer. Praise Jesus for all that he has done for us. I never thought I'd hear my sister say praise Jesus. God answers prayer. Maybe you have that person in your life you're praying for. You're praying for them to come to the knowledge of who he is. Maybe you need, you need to pray more. You need to hold on. Because our God is one who's an ever ask, everlasting God. That God, Our God changes things. He changes us and he changes situations. He changes people's lives. God is in the business of changing lives. God is in the business of wanting to show himself in the life of his people as they seek his face. God answers prayer. Some of you right now are in difficult situations. You're feeling like everything is hopeless and you want to give in and you want to give up. But God has given you a tool to call on him and he will be there for you. He may not show up in a way that you expect, but he might be doing something behind the scenes and behind, the, behind and underneath the surface that you don't even begin to understand. But he is working in such a way to show himself in your life. But he's calling us to trust in him. Calling us to come to him. Saying, I've got everything you need. Quit relying on yourself. Come to me, all you who are weary, burdened, and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. That's what God is saying. He's saying, I want to give you myself. I want to show myself in your life. Will you trust in me? Will you come to me? No matter what your struggle is, I want to give you myself. I want to show you that I am there. I want to show you that I love you. I want to be there when times are hard. I want you to call on me and sing praises when you're happy. I want you to call on me and call for others to help when you're in need of healing. I want you to, I want you to call on me and love me. I've given you myself. I've given you everything. Will you call on God? He's got everything you need. 
There's nothing that he has that will he withhold from his children if they ask of him. Do you trust in him? He wants to give you himself. Or to confess honestly, intercede compassionately, live righteously, ask expectantly, and then wait patiently. And he will show himself to be God. In his timing and in his way. For his glory and your joy. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, you are the awesome God. You are the living God. You are the God of hope. You are the God of second chances. You are the God who is there when we have messed up, when we've screwed up, when we've, all, we've done everything wrong in our lives. You're still there for us. And you're offering mercy. You're offering grace. You're offering forgiveness. You're offering to, to fill us, to direct us, to empower us, to reshape us. Lord, you are the God of hope. You are the only hope. Lord, so often we see people turning to find hope in so many other things, in, in politics, in, in money, in fame, in their ability. But Lord, we know only with you is their true and lasting hope. And that you have everything we need. And you spoke to, through James to encourage those Christians so long ago. And you're writing by your spirit and you're speaking to us now. Lord, help us to make the changes that are necessary to show and reveal our trust and our hope is in you. No matter what situation we're facing, whether if it's a problem with our, our job or, or maybe we're looking for a job or maybe we're getting fired from our job or maybe it's in our marriages, Lord, where we feel like we're just going to give up, where, where he or she is not treating me the way that they should be treating me. They're not loving me the way that I feel like I should be loved. Lord, I pray that you show yourself to be the one who changes hearts and minds. Help them to hold on, to trust in you, to be obedient, to surrender to you, to give up themselves and lay it at your feet because you are the God who cares. You are the God who loves us and you show the depth of your love on the cross. Lord, when you sent your son to die for us, to, to pay the price for our sins, to be our substitute, to take our dishonor, to take our guilt, to take our shame, to defeat the powers of the evil one, and Lord, it's by your resurrection that we know that we can have forgiveness, that we can have peace, that we can have purpose, and that we can find forgiveness and new life in you. Lord, only in you is there hope. We ask you to empower us, speak to us, and show yourself to be God in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.